I think if you don't have a team that's looking at things horizontally, you really start to run the risk of just really making a broken experience or duplication of roadmaps. You even have it even if you are centralized to some extent, but I think when you have that, it can help just make sure that there is more cohesion that happens as you scale. Hi everyone, welcome to Design Drives, where we explore why, how and what design and designers are driving forward. The mission is to interview the most forward-thinking designers and most innovative creators on the planet, to inspire and help you to reach your full creative potential and to make a positive impact in the world. In the episode, I chat with Kate Nygaard, who is a design director at WhatsApp, has been previously working at Airbnb, Spotify and Method as a design director. With Kate, we discuss how to manage teams and foster creativity and innovation in design projects. We also discuss what she learned working with some of the best product teams in the world and what fuels outstanding successful products and what she has learned when she is working at Airbnb during COVID and how design actually helped to create and explore new possibilities during a time of uncertainty and change. I hope you enjoy the episode. So I'm here with Kat Nygaard. Thank you so much for taking your time. Sure, thank you for inviting me. So really looking forward to the episode. Uh, we're going to talk about design leadership, managing teams, building out design cultures, and then also learning from you when it comes to working with some of the best product teams out there. You have been working at a lot of different companies like Airbnb, Spotify, and, and WhatsApp, for example. So we're really looking forward to that. I think what would be really great for the audience, if you could just maybe talk a little bit how it all started out for you. How did you got into design? and um, a little bit about your journey. Sure. So I think um, I kind of got into design very organically. It was not something I really even knew I, like, was a thing um, that I could be doing. I studied um, music, anthropology, and art history, which weirdly kind of, I don't know, none of those things could make me money, obviously, I thought anyway. Um, but I kind of felt like, in a strange way, those type of interdisciplinary things kind of, kind of came together into the space of experience design for me. So when I first started out, I was in San Francisco and interning at like a, an agency there. And I was more as a producer, so I didn't really know much of anything. It was just, you know, designing websites and, and things like that. But you did, basically did everything. So it was a small design shop. I think that was the first time I started to think about how this was the closest thing I could imagine from what I studied to kind of map to the things that I did the, the most. So what I thought was really cool is that there's engineers and it kind of satisfied this uh, geeky tech side that I like complex systems that I thought were really interesting that I didn't know anything about, but it was just me learning. And then design, which I never thought I would be good at, but I just thought of art is this place to get into, but not necessarily design and graphic design. The other piece of it was just around production or producing and project managing, which I, that's where I started, but it wasn't really my strength. Um, but it just, those types of things came together for me and it really clicked. And so I think starting out there, I just, I just never left. I just, I, it's kind of, I started at a really young age um, and just continued to um, hone in on design as the central piece of what I wanted to focus on. And I think it wasn't until 
that that first job that I started to realize how much I love design. I think I always growing up, I thought um, marine biology was really cool. And I was always into fashion um, and always into music. So there's just something emotive about those types of things in that space that drew me into working at a design shop and then organically kind of falling into design. Yeah, I mean, that artistic side that you are mentioning, right? Like, you know, music and fashion, I think there's a there's an interlinkage, I think, uh, when it comes to the, the, the creative side. And then, you know, after starting out, I mean, you've been working at, you, you, you as you said, you started very young and then uh, you worked at, you know, all of these different companies. How did that all come together for you? Again, it was really randomly organic. <laughs> I, I, just, I just followed my gut the entire time. There was no plan. Um, this is maybe exposing a lot of my uh, kind of ill-planned way that I dealt with my my future, but I, I was excited. It was like a, a playground of different technologies and, and new things to, to learn. And I felt like I, I had a richer experience when I left university versus when I was in university in a weird way. Um, and I ended up coming to London and working for an agency in, in, in London for a while and kind of going back and forth between San Francisco and London. And I think just fell into places like Yahoo, for example, um, where I started out as this person that was interested in art and, and music and fashion. And it's just kind of interesting that that thread kind of carried through where I ended up working, whether that was at Spotify or at Netflix Reporter or even Airbnb where travel, which is a big thing. It's just kind of part of who I am as a person. I think I'm quite different from a lot of the people you see in Silicon Valley from, from that standpoint, um, even at Facebook um, within WhatsApp. Um, I'm much more of an artist when I approach design and when I approach even design direction or anything operational. And it's a slightly different tact from a lot of the people that you see in the industry that we're in. Um, but yeah, I think I think from when I first started out, I think those types of disciplines in, in that area really kind of drove the, the people's passions and my passion for those spaces really drove my interest in, in diving deeper into the world of, of tech and design. Um, so I always was drawn to places that had more of that intersection, whether that was fashion and tech coming together, if that was music and tech coming together or travel and tech coming together. I just discovered through um, my experiences where my strengths were. And I think by nature, I just, maybe because of more of a conceptual artist mind, I'd like to connect dots. And so there's this system thinking mind that I just naturally have. And there's from cultural anthropology and just understanding people, you want to try to, try to create these narratives um, to, that connect someone's story to the interface or create the narrative arc for the interface or what is the overarching journey that someone you want to have someone have as they go through an experience so for me it's just thinking about systems from a network journey all the way down to micro interaction systematic thinking if that makes sense absolutely and then if you look back uh, when was the first time uh, that where you really noticed that you with your role coming from a design side and, and all your experience you can make it really make a positive contribution either to 
solving a problem for the user, um, you know, solving a business problem or just, you know, making a positive impact. Was there any particular project that uh, really, um, you know, you can remember where you really had uh, the feeling that you can, you know, have a positive effect to your work? It's a really good question because I can't really think a particular project. I think there are certain times. I think um, Method was a place for me, uh, Method Design Studios, where we, we were based in London, San Francisco, and New York, which is perfect for me. So I would go between those offices quite a bit. And the practice and mindset of thinking about service, product, and brand was very much a natural approach uh, to the, the design thinking kind of um, way to solve problems. And I think that's where I just started to come. It just felt like the most natural aha moment for me is being there and solving problems for places like Samsung and and developing and creating um, design solutions for devices that help people with accessibility issues. I think it's um, maybe broader than just accessibility. I think it's improving people's lives. I think for the same reason you talked about doing your podcast um, around, you know, how we can use design to make positive impact. That is very much what drives me in any place I go to, whether that's in some cases, like fashion, for example, isn't really making people's lives better, but it's, it's satisfying like a passion of people's. And so I, I think there's just something really emotive about designing things that can create a positive emotional reaction and and those things I find really inspiring and exciting I just could never get bored of it so I think yeah whether it's uh, improving or making someone's life easier in a home that someone's hosting when you go travel somewhere and you know that it's going to be accessible to you know making something super easy uh, to play in Spotify or find the right kind of music or discover in different ways. And any one of those things can be really impactful. I think one of the most genius things that, that has a lot of impact in terms of what it says about a brand or the thoughtfulness of, 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 of a brand is um, the quivering icon that happens that state in, the, in, um, in iOS when you long press um, on your launch icons. I, I think there's something super impactful even about that because I always remember it at least it is for me and I just think it's such a smart micro interaction those type of things are thoughtful and I think those also drive impact mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah super interesting maybe let's dive into some of the experiences that you you made and maybe some learnings working at these different companies we are all in the times of transformation and change and you've been working at Airbnb I think just before you moved to London to work at WhatsApp uh, and at Airbnb, obviously, you work just in the times where there was most transformation with COVID and, you know, yeah. you know, everyone's life changed. And I think what's interesting about Airbnb is that you also have to design for multiple users. But, you know, besides that fact and, you know, design that relationship, also the whole business model has changed right now. Um, basically, they're putting more focus on experiences and even online experiences. So what did you learn uh, when you were designing at uh, Airbnb when it comes to, you know, the change a company can go through and what that means for design? It was a super tough time because it was, you know, we also lost people and I was part of that as well, which was terrible. I think even before that, I kind of knew it was coming because I, I oversaw the hosting side and then there was some, someone else overseeing the guest side and, um, you know, in constant meetings, seeing the numbers dropping and dropping and dropping and projections starting to look really 
concerning just in terms of the COVID-19 and what we thought might happen. And I think the thing that became so intense, but also I think brought a lot of us really close together was it's basically a time of crisis where everyone kind of who was there really wanted to help change and commit to trying to save the business, trying to do meaningful work that can support people who are frontline workers, for example. But a lot of the efforts pivoted from, you know, moving from incrementality of of trying to get conversion to how do we support frontline workers so they have free places to stay or low price places to stay in Italy or in, in different regions. And I think there's a certain level of pride that the design team and others that just wanted to make a difference and continue to kind of keep the experience high, but commit to, you know, supporting um, what was happening. And I think concurrently, as that was going on, you saw this wave of people or regions not really realizing how severe COVID was. And you'd see hosts get angry because we were having to change certain things. And then that sentiment would change again and become more positive. It was, it was like this ripple effect that you saw over time. That was happening concurrently, which was crazy to see. So there was a lot of close, closer connection and communication with the host at that time. So I think it started to bring more light to the host and more attention to the host, which to be honest, they, they needed. And I think there was a closer relationship there that happened just out of need, really. And then there's also the team too, and just wanting to support the team and trying to figure out how do you how do you not let people burn out? We started to lose sense of hours and time and everything was a priority and everything had to move quickly. So you're also trying to make sure that people don't burn out, that you have the right tenacity to push back if we needed to. It's tough to balance out urgency of a business that might be in crisis with everyone's well-being and, and knowing this is a very stressful time. So it was a it was a really uh, crazy time. And then from a design perspective, the, the pivots and changes that were taking place, we put into into kind of a immediate action, like a task force that also tried to mitigate bifurcation of the experience. So looking at how do we create more transparency of all the changes happening. So making basically giant Figma files to share across all the teams to, to make sure that every time there's a change, everyone sees it and create that visibility. So as we were shipping things really quickly out to just help people who are frontline workers and you know reacting to sentiment as COVID started to get worse and, and shift. But yeah, it was a a really intense time. And it was, I think everything was just accelerated in terms of what you learned from that experience these pivots and these changes, I can do it more instinctually now and know what will work and what won't work in terms of shifting or pivoting. I, I see that maybe as an advantage, you know, for other teams and, and scaling teams or, or changes or pivots. And then just being more cognizant of how people feel in a time that's so challenging. So yeah, it was like a lot of high running emotions um, and anxiety is on top of a ton of change. And stress that was going on at that time so it was a big challenge so it really made you to emphasize more you know especially you said with the host right 
the host user because you have to design for the guest user and the host user, which is kind of interesting. And you really had to, you know, get an understanding. What is the person feeling? What are their emotions? How could you use, you know, with empathy, really understanding, like, you know, how can you support them with an interface element, etc. And I can imagine that maybe some of the ideas you come across doing that exercise, you maybe think, hmm, the longer I think about it, this could have been useful even before, you know, COVID or something like that, right? Exactly. A lot of things that happened over the course of that time forced us to have more rigor around the system that we created. It forced us to simplify in some ways a lot of complexity that we sort of developed over time. Because you just, when you're forced to just hone in and, and focus, I think it really shifts your prioritization of things. You're really forced into making some tough decisions, whereas before a lot was prioritized. In this case, we had to really start to push on reducing things and pushing back. And then there were new things that spawned up that we would have never imagined, which is just around thinking about quality of stays, but then quality also meant high level of hygiene and and safety and cleanliness. And so different protocols and things getting developed for that as well and making sure that people were actually safe and and did feel comfortable coming into people's homes and that equally hosts felt like they had the right information to support all the things that they could do and even access because a lot of people couldn't even access you know um, antibacterial wipes for the longest time so it was it was all these different things that we really had to concurrently try to nail down but to say it, it was a pretty impressive effort done by everyone such a crazy turnaround <laughs> by the end of the year of having such a positive um, IPO. Yeah, it was just a whirlwind of ups and downs in that in that time. Yeah, the IPO was also in the middle of that. Uh, totally right. And I mean, to your point before, I can totally see what you mean with, you know, um, using empathy and, and coming up with, with new ideas. You know, one thing that I'm always saying is that even accessibility, but, you know, empathy in general is a tool also for innovation, right? You can really use it to come up with new ideas. It's not just about just making things incrementally better. And I guess you, you came up with found sources for ideas and inspiration, basically, to come up with, with features and, and innovation that, you know, could not just be benefit to a person being exactly that specific niche use case, but actually benefiting benefiting to all. I mean, one of the challenges must be also that you have to deal with all the different local regulations. <laughs> you know, when you design an, an experience for a person in India, that might be, you know, different and depending on what information you show them uh, in terms of like regulations and things they have to keep in mind. They might be completely different to a person in the UK because it was like one in Brazil, right? So I guess that was that was also a challenge, I guess, from a from a content perspective almost, right? Yeah, that's always and and policies, yeah, are widely different. I mean, that's that's pretty much in every product I've worked on. But I think um yeah, Airbnb was definitely that that's always a challenge, whether it's policy based or it's perception based of you know, what, what it's doing from a potential gentrification aspect or what it's doing to local communities. Is it positive? Is it negative? How do we balance that out? And there's a lot of consideration to trying to be cognizant of that as well. But obviously every country, like, like Germany, for example, I think not the most popular you know, product in Berlin, for example. So I, I think it's it's just, yeah, it, that is a constant. And there's a whole team that focuses on policy um, and they're global. Um, and that's a, that's a massive, massive effort to try to, 
ensure that we're getting to all the local regulation, regulatory mandates and things that shift and change. And housing makers work with the lobbyists all the time to try to make sure that we're moving upstream to manage and mitigate a lot of the regulations that Airbnb would run up against. One interesting aspect is that also the whole focus of the product has to change, right? Um, you know, there were no physical states and I think there was more an emphasis on experiences and then digital experiences even, right? The digital video experiences, video events, basically online events, which is a completely different space. And now suddenly you compete with, you know, complete other platforms, you know, like Eventbrite, for example, which you know, also went into that space. So I think that's very interesting. Any learnings how the design team was maybe able to to imagine these futures or help in you know carrying them out or how did that process go? So I wasn't actually in charge of experiences, but that team in particular was quite small. But they would just double down and focused on on the digital experiences side once things all sort of went dark for Airbnb stays. That was the big focus, and so I think what was super impressive about Airbnb in that time is just how we quickly pivoted into just doubling down on the spaces that we needed to for the crisis that we were in because we were definitely in one we just did what we needed to it was, I, to some extent that's just kind of the nature of how Airbnb works I think there's a lot of um, good gut instinct that's there as well in terms of what made the most sense And a lot of the experiences that were digital actually were formerly uh, physical. There were some, some of my favorites. I think, I don't know if you've ever gone to the, uh, there's the, the drag queen cocktail making class in Lisbon. Um, <laughs> it's just, that's, that's my favorite, one of my favorite ones. But that, that one is amazing to do digitally. But it's just really cool to see. And, and some of the experiences. It's cool how that just happened kind of organically to some extent. And now it has become such an exciting new part of the platform. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't really part of that piece, but there's always opportunities to figure out how even hosts converge with experiences and that sort of thing too. So I'm excited to see what happens in that space moving forward. And I think a lot of other, was it Cameo even, I think some of those things I don't know if they were inspired by experiences digitally, but I think that there are definitely some other startups after that that popped up that seemed inspired by Airbnb experiences as well that were digital. I can imagine working in such a change of, uh, in terms of change, I think one of the great powers of design is, you know, visualization as basic as it sounds. But if you package it into a narrative, uh, it can help to speculate about the future. It can help to make people imagine making you know and it doesn't have to be always correct i mean doesn't you have to not be correct with every vision you create but at least shows people certain north stars in terms of like how a product or company could go and then it creates a platform for people to have a discussion about the future and basically just shows a bandwidth of you know different options of you know where business could go so um, i think that's very interesting Obviously, at Airbnb, you designed for a lot of users, right? But I think the use case of WhatsApp is even more such a daily one, right? Main human need when it comes to communication. WhatsApp has been one of the most um, popular platforms for doing that. So I assume that's also in that regard different than designing for Airbnb where you have a specific use case. You can design around a certain use case. 
and you, you can make certain decisions while I assume at WhatsApp, you have to be sometimes more usability driven, or you really have to ask yourself, okay, this feature has to work for 2.x billion users. So, um, you know, what it's like to design for basically, you know, more than a, a billion users. Yeah, it's super interesting to go through. I mean, it's not only the Airbnb is it, you're thinking about so many layers of the experience. Like you're thinking about um, the interface is the, the tiniest part. There's, you know, it's the person's stay, it's the guests coming in, it's their journey, trying to unlock and figure out how to get to the key box and un get the code and unlock everything into the space itself. It's all those different layers. And with WhatsApp and, and messaging, it's super, super focused. And I think, and it's really system-based, it's a utility. But what I think is super interesting about WhatsApp, and I think more, maybe I'm more in awe of this as an American because less people use it in the US. And so I don't have this emotional connection with WhatsApp like a lot of other people do outside of the US. Although I'm starting to pick this up just because of people's energy around it. So when I say that I work at WhatsApp, I've had people thank me, which is pretty interesting. Like thank me because I've helped them with their business somehow, or they get all warm and squishy about how it reminds them of their friends. And it's just super interesting that this is, it evokes this emotion, even though it's just this utility or this is how I see it. Um, and I think the difference is not that like in an Airbnb is very similar to all the way down to design detail of every little tiny pixel is important from design perspective, which is why I think it wasn't a massive leap for me to go into to WhatsApp. However, I think the big leap is I think from an experience standpoint, this multi-layered aspect of thinking about design that I just carry with me. I think we're starting to need to have at, at WhatsApp, and so I think it's an interesting thing from a WhatsApp perspective, a lot of it is instinctual and really very passionately thinking about the user first, um, which is which is great. Um, and it's all about simplicity and privacy and security and a highly, highly principled approach. And I think that's why it's done so well to scale to so many people. There's a very pure mindedness about the approach to WhatsApp and, and the thinking around the design and it's all very detailed. I would almost equate it to, to a watchmaker thinking about the tiniest nuances of, of the design. And a lot of the, the attention is there. However, there's other spaces that we operate in to make sure the platform is safe, um, obviously. And that's where the other layers come in, like in the integrity team and um, making sure that we're mindful of bad actors on the platform and how do we manage that? So I think, and privacy and how do we ensure that? So I think there's a lot of thinking about that as well. So it's not just about the interface again itself, um, but all these other layers of experience that, that make it safe and secure and something that people have these emotional reactions um, to what's up because of that. So it's different in the sense that it's, I think a little bit more startup-y than, than Airbnb to some extent. And there's more focus on the interface itself, but, and the decision-making for, like you said, uh, releasing something to so many users is very, 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 very careful. And so there's a lot of consideration, a lot of deliberation and thoughtfulness that goes into 
designing the interface for WhatsApp. And when you operate a designer at, at that level, how do you balance the uh, the aspect of basically something that is um, familiar, uh, something that people know, you know, the usability, the carefulness, and on the other side, something, an aspect like innovation, new ideas, um, you know, trends. Like, like, how do you balance these two sides? This is something that we're starting to explore a little bit more. We have a team in London that we're starting to look into. Um, we integrate into other platforms. And so part of that is starting to look similarly to how I, um, how Spotify, I don't know if there's the structure this way, but kind of like a flywheel of sorts where you look at incubation and experimentation of different platforms. And then, and then a team that starts to integrate based on bets that we think seem viable for us to take into integration. So and we're starting to work on what it could look like to vision things out a little bit more. And I think there's a lot to learn yet in terms of being okay with the balance. Um, things like the design system, for example, is something relatively new that we have at WhatsApp that we are starting to make very tiny visual alignment shifts to the palette, to the color, um, integrating in uh, a grid that for most people won't be noticeable, but should start to clean up um, some of the elements of the design. And so that's how it's, it's a very careful, carefully released stages of change. And I, I, I don't think that even if we looked at some of this vision stuff, we would be rolling big things out. What worked for WhatsApp now is carefulness in terms of how we release things. And I think it's been interesting because we think about new services now, whereas that's just not been something that WhatsApp has had to think about. It's always been improving the coverage of a speech bubble or looking at color alignment and, and trying to refine the, the design over time. But I think now we're looking at new surfaces and, and how do we introduce those or do we not introduce those? Are they, are they um, discovered organically because that makes sense and it's natural? I think there's a lot of trying to think about how do we build out and evolve WhatsApp, um, but still keep it true to what it's meant to be, which is around messaging. There's, there's a lot of thinking involved in right now and how, how we do that and, and, and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I mean, I assume, you know, when, when people think about WhatsApp, I think people think about an experience that, you know, as you said, it's being designed very carefully. If you look at um, how maybe, um, you know, the Facebook interface has changed over the years quite dramatically, I think. Uh, if you look at the desktop version, for example, and on some other service, they, they changed more rapidly by WhatsApp. And I think that's what people appreciate also. It, it, it's not changing that rapidly you know, with, with any new trend or, you know, um, potential idea. So I think that is... Um, that is very interesting that you also shine some light. You know, there is a lot of work in the background. It's actually a very complex product if you think about integration to services. I mean, I was recently using WhatsApp for business. Um, uh, I didn't know that, you know, oh, yeah. existed, you know, and you yeah. know, there's a whole another world basically behind it, you know. Uh, even though people, I think, I really know this one interface, basically, the, you know, the chat, I think, you know, the complexity of the product is often, I think, not even noticeable to the user, which I think is interesting to shine some light on. 
talking about maybe a bit about design cultures and, and design leadership, you have been managing a lot of different design projects, different teams, uh, you know, throughout your career and uh, working with, you know, really excellent product teams. What were some principles and learnings you learned that make a great product team really uh, one of the world's best? I think part of it is just having sheer passion for it, what it is that you do, like that knowing that design is, is, is core to what someone's interest and passion is. I think that's kind of where it starts with the heart in a way. It's, I think it's a, it's a very emotional connection to design. And, and that kind of drive, I think, gives people just the energy to, to do something good. And then I think the flip side of that is to ensure doing good work means you have to have a happy team. How do you maintain those things? And I think it's trying to clear as many obstacles out of the way that don't feel like design. I'm a big, big fan of uh, design hops. I think they're invaluable. I know I'm not the most organized person and DPMs and design operations has been kind of like a godsend to me. They're like the part of the brain that I, I don't have. <laughs> um, but I think for a lot of people in design, it's, it's looking at how do we unblock design from the things that they get confronted by that we can kind of free them up to then focus on the craft. I think craft and, and being good at what you do from a craft perspective makes you proud of, of what it is that you're producing and you're doing. I think another th thing that's really important is, is having some kind of North Star, whether that, whether that moves or changes or shifts on someone, I think that's completely fine. But I think when you don't have, you don't know where you're headed and you don't know why, it's really hard for people to be driven towards something. Yeah, you want to make things look nice, but you want to know why. <laughs> and you want to know to what end. And so I think it's really important to have that. I think transparency is another thing that's really important um, to gain trust and to, to have a connection with your team. And I think being able to innovate and you know push things a little bit further out keeps you kind of like your mind going a little bit um, in terms of entrepreneurship and thinking about where things can go and ownership I think allowing people the trust and transparency and then being held accountable for some of the work that they do also gives people a certain level of autonomy and pride in what they do um, so I think from a design leadership standpoint those are the types of things that produce good work because generally you're going to have a happier team it's then it's been interesting to even know if the team's happy when you're remote I think that's like another dimension that I'm not really sure how to quite I don't have the answer to I don't know it's a tricky one it's interesting but I, I, I there must be some mechanisms that we can start to look at I don't think anyone has solved it perfectly though because everyone I talk to seems to still have the same kind of challenges with the remote aspect but those are the things that I think help teams thrive from a design leadership standpoint produce good work yeah I mean that totally makes sense and you you really emphasize these emotional factors right that are important for a great uh you know an innovative team uh which I think totally makes sense and I also agree to it to your point regarding, you know, like how do you actually in a times like COVID actually foster collaboration uh, the best way? I think that we still have to learn what are the best 
ways to, I think, put teams together, have them really strive. And, um, you know, obviously this is different to if you have a more physical setup. I assume also in the different companies that you worked on, that design was integrated quite differently. Um, you know, maybe you had a central design team there and maybe you have um, uh, another team, uh, another company where, you know, design is within the products. And maybe in addition, you had maybe a central design team, which looked at the, the horizontal, basically alignment. How did it work at the, the different companies? And uh, what did you learn when it comes to integrating design in product teams or how, or not? <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good question because I that is something I'm actually kind of I'm pretty passionate about too. I think in most places, you know, at another Porte and Mr. Porter, the team is relatively small and we just kind of worked across things, although we were somewhat embedded and kind of organized by cross journey to some extent. And the teams were more or less embedded a little bit, but we would always share across. It was a little bit more of a free flowing construct. Um at Airbnb, we when I first got there, we were embedded. As we kind of ebbed and flowed over time, we started to think about moving toward a studio model of sorts, not as an agency, but largely because embedded, we had on the hosting side in particular, Guest was different. Guest was a smaller team and it was easier to, to work as surface teams. So there might be search as a team and you know uh, the PDP, which is the product detail page might be a team. Whereas on the hosting side, you had like nine verticals that focus one on hotels. Could, another one could focus on RBO, which is kind of like a rent by owner, like the bread and butter start of hosting. There might be a team that focuses purely on quality of a stay, but all these teams might use varying similar interfaces but not the same interface. It gets it gets really messy. Multiple roadmaps that are duplicative, kind of, but then like it just gets messy. So we started to look at a model where you have possibly a really tiny team embedded for, for experimentation, but very little experimentation. Because like, I think you had mentioned this before, but a lot of times experiments just lead to little tiny incremental change, whereas we weren't being as transformative as we could be. So looking at something that was more of a cohesive journey team that started to look at things cross journey meant we could have a better design system, more cohesion, less duplication of roadmaps, but it also meant a little bit more overhead in terms of either DPMs or project management. And intake requests of how do we work with embedded teams. And there was a really close partnership with the tech teams as well, because the tech team also had similar problems. They had like a spaghetti tech stack they were working with. We had kind of a spaghetti front end. <laughs> Both of our teams could take advantage of a more centralized approach to design. Um, so in that sense, that was the direction that made sense. It was more of a hybrid approach. My feeling is that like Spotify too, I've been talking to people who are were there and had some people who worked from Spotify who went to Airbnb. And it just seems like the natural ebb and flow of growth is that you go between in this pendulum effect between embedded to hybrid to centralized based on where you're at in terms of growth. And I think that was my experience. That's been my experience so far. WhatsApp, we're in a pillar structure 
which is more or less embedded, but we have a design system team in, in London as well, where that one is horizontal and it's the only horizontal, one of the only horizontal teams looking across everything. And so I think we'll see how that goes. I think we're still quite small in terms of the design team. We'll see if we need to change that in any way. I'd love to try to keep the embedded nature a little flex in case we need to support in certain ways as we grow, but that's kind of the, the organizational constructs. I think if you don't have a team that's looking at things horizontally, you really start to run the risk of just really making a broken experience or duplication of roadmaps. You even have it even if you are centralized to some extent. But I think when you have that, it can help just make sure that there is more cohesion that happens as you scale. I'm curious to know if there's any other models, but I think the hybrid approach is probably when you get to a certain size might be the best approach. And some of that was kind of inspired about how Apple was structured on the HIG teams and, and, and looking at how they do things too. That sort of thing always fascinates me in terms of how do you pivot growth and change team constructs as, as you grow a team and make sure that you're still maintaining high quality output. Yeah, I mean, that makes all the sense. You're touching on a couple of important topics. I mean, yeah, you like if you not have a horizontal design team, you know, you you run into problems. I think it's also, it's, it's also a culture aspect, right? Where if you don't connect the designers in the different teams, um, you also lack or you don't maybe don't have any design community, right? Yeah. Uh, I know, but I think sometimes like designers are also looking for the home, like where are the other designers in the company? And, you know, how could we collaborate and how can we sync Certain topics, I think from, by definition, I think designers are always looking for that, for that alignment and, 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 and that synchronization of the experience. So I think that's, it's, it's not just important rationally because you want, don't want to have a broken experience, but like, it's also important emotionally yeah, uh, to have designers connected and basically have, you know, other designers to collaborate. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that it always changes, you know, it's, it's, I think that's also interesting. Like that depends, it depends totally on the stage you are in a company, Yeah, completely. Uh, but you uh, probably having a hybrid approach makes sense because mm -hmm. neither of the, um, vertical or horizontal kind of work in, in any scenario, obviously this is very depending on the, on the on the scenario right that might be very different maybe to uh, to other companies that maybe have designers design teams at smaller uh, as, uh, or the product teams at smaller size Kat, i would really like um to thank you for you know your insights and your perspectives unfortunately we need to wrap it up uh, because sure. of time now but uh, thank you so much for the time yeah thank you i really appreciate it it's nice talking to you All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up and let me know in the comments or by taking me in a post, what were the biggest learnings for you in the episode? I'm always super curious about that. If the episode provided you a lot of value, make sure to follow and subscribe and share it with friends or others so they also have the chance to learn and grow themselves. All right, until next time, cheers.